more stories like this have to be told to push back against what the culture has been told for so many years. And you if know, we can, we can win. You know, you have to realize that Jesus was the greatest storyteller of all. Mm. I mean, he was telling the parables, which were the movies of the day. So we know that they work. We mm -hmm. know that movies are really the, have the most important impact on the culture. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman. We've got a great guest show for you today. I am going to be speaking to two fil filmmakers who are behind the project. He named him Adam, which is a fantastic pro-life film that you're going to hear all about today. But more than that, you're going to hear about... Uh, blacklisting in Hollywood, how important it is that we stand up for the issue of life, and so, so much more. So thank you guys so much for joining us. So if you wouldn't mind, do me a favor and just kind of just give a brief bio uh, for, for each of you guys and just kind of tell people a little bit of your background, who you are, and uh, what you guys are in the process of doing. So let's start with who you are first. So we'll start with you. So my name is Mark Aramian, and um, I had a career as a composer for perhaps uh, 25 years, something like that. And um, after I moved to Los Angeles, I, uh, I, I joined a filmmaker's uh, co cooperative. It was a place where filmmakers could come together, guerrilla filmmakers, people who were trying to make movies with very little equipment. Mm -hmm. This is the, at the beginning of digital age. Um, and I offered my services to the writers and directors that were in this group. And Veronica was one of those people, and that's how we met at that uh, at that particular group. Anyway, um, before that, I was uh, I lived uh, in Atlanta for many years. I was. Have you ever heard of the six stages of fame? No. Oh, stage. I'm probably on stage six, though. Just so you know. <laughs> stage one. Who's Reed? Okay. Stage two. I think I've heard of Reed. Okay. Stage three get read stage four get a young read mm -hmm. stage five i think i've heard of read and stage six who's read yeah yeah okay i was accurate i was going to joke because i thought stage six was like um al pacino but apparently <laughs> stage six is more accurate anyway so so yes so anyway um in Atlanta, I became, when I got to stage four, which was get a young Mark Aramian, that's when I left. And I, I uh, started a joint venture company with a big media company in the Philippines and was there for a couple of years. And after that, I moved to London and I worked as a film composer there as well. And um, eventually I intended to come to Los Angeles and that's what brought me to Los Angeles. And when I met Veronica, she was... Um, she intended to make a short film and I said well let me help you make it I'll produce it and I fell in love with producing so mm -hmm. my life has been split between sound music and producing and now we're just full-blown going in, into uh, making this movie all right also what about you Veronica so I started out as an actor uh, I was living in New York City for several years and I migrated into playwriting and much to my surprise my plays actually started getting produced and from there I jumped into directing and at my peak in New York City I actually had three plays running at the same time I had a children's musical that was running for three and a half years off off Broadway in the village mm -hmm. I had a one act running off Broadway and I had a full-length play and I was still teaching, temping, running around, doing day player on soaps, whatever I could do to make my ends meet. And so uh, at one point, the light bulb went off uh, on top of my head, said, what am I doing? And I moved to Los Angeles, which is something that I had been avoiding for a long time, mm -hmm. even though I was born and raised in California. So uh, only to find out that, again, they have even less respect for playwrights than they do for screenwriters in Los Angeles. So I had to kind of start out at the bottom and work my way up all over again. I worked in production offices, even for a couple of famous directors. Um, I read scripts. I was a script reader, uh, and then which is the person who reads and analyzes screenplays and decides whether or not they're appropriate for a production company. And eventually I landed an agent and uh, I was hired to work for independents and studios. And what a lot of people don't realize is even though you get hired to write a screenplay, it doesn't mean that it's actually going to make it to the screen. 
I actually had a screenplay that um, I had written uh, for a producer and it was slated for production uh, years ago when the actor strike happened and then the whole thing fell apart. So those kinds of things, not uh, not uh, you know, uh, often they they interfere with mm -hmm. the, with what's going to happen and in getting them in, into production. So um, I decided that I wanted to kind of take the bull by the horns and do filmmaking myself, learn as much as I could about it. Mm -hmm. I took filmmaking courses. I had taken them back in New York and actually worked in production on films and commercials. And when I got to Los Angeles, I joined this independent filmmaking collective and I started working on crew positions. And I was a crew member of almost every department you can think of. Uh, and then that's when I met Mark and we decided let's make a movie together. So we started our production company and uh, we had a good deal of success. And what's the name of the company? Crunch Entertainment, yeah. Okay. We started our production company and started making films, fell in love, got married. And, uh, and then of course we went the full uh, cycle until unfortunately we ended up, I ended up um, essentially getting blacklisted. Mm -hmm. Um, I think uh, people caught wind of my uh, conservative Christian beliefs, and that is unacceptable in yeah. Hollywood. And uh, kiss of death. yeah, it's a kiss of death. And it was ironic because I was getting struck from everybody's uh, uh, lists and contact lists, and my projects were collapsing. Hmm. As I had a very successful independent short film that we had done in Los Angeles, so it was doing the film festival circuit. Yeah. And it was winning awards and it was getting noticed and it was being invited to screen at festivals all over the world. So, so you were experiencing a bit of success and that's when also your career started to take it a turn. So fall apart. Yeah. yeah, it fell apart because um, I was invited to participate as an author in a um, uh, Breitbart.com, which uh, is a... Uh, that's a kiss of death, too, by the way. Yes, Breitbart. And no, so <laughs> I was invited to uh, participate in writing a couple of articles, and I did. And it immediately... Just, what were the nature of the articles? Well, one of them was a humor article. It was called How Hollywood Taught Me Not to Behave. <laughs> and, uh, and it was about my experiences growing up in a household with a Kennedy Democrat, which my father was, yeah. and a Repub legacy Republican mother who grew up in a house that was built in 1774 and had been used as part of the Underground Railroad during the Civil War. So I had a Democrat and a legacy Republican in my household and an academic household. So we were taught that when you came to the table, you needed to be respectful. You needed to know your stuff. You needed to be respectful and um, you needed to listen to people. So so uh, we had people from all races, creeds, colors, political persuasions, belief systems growing up around me at my dinner table and everybody was welcome. The uh, quintessential element was respect. Mm -hmm. And what I noted was that was going away in Hollywood. Yeah. And all of a sudden there was a shift in the early 2000s where the respectful conversation shifted to, it's either you believe what I believe or I am going to marginalize you, demonize you, cancel you, and uh, your career is gonna be yeah. over. And that of course is the pervasive attitude now. So I guess I was kind of an early person to experience that mm -hmm. and I was very low on the totem pole because people knew who I was but I certainly was not a famous person. Do you, do you think it was um the content of that article, do you think it was the fact that you wrote for Andrew Breitbart, which was a very well-known figure and a very well-known conservative figure and kind of a lightning rod of controversy? Or do you think, is there something else that you think that led specifically to your blacklisting? The article was a humor article and it was just about... Well, we all know that the, the left only has uh, humor where it pertains to the things that they find funny. Exactly. So I think it was just the fact that I participated in writing. I, I never talked about my, my political So you think it was beliefs. Breitbart? I think it was the fact that it was Breitbart and yeah. I participated in Breitbart and of course Mark and I actually knew him mm -hmm. and um, we we socialized with him not a great deal but certainly we occasionally we went to parties and he was there and we talked yeah. to him he knew who we were 
And, and for uh, those who don't know who Andrew Breitbart is, he's basically, I, I think this is fair to say, the guy that launched the career of Ben Shapiro and launched the career of James O'Keefe and a lot of other conservative thinkers. And he was really, really, he was one of the few guys at the time who was taking conservatism on the offensive, I would say. Yes. I yes. Yeah. With humor. Yeah. And, yeah. and again, he was a former communist. So as a former Marxist, he knew how to sort of address these arguments like I do because I was a former Green Party member. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, you know, uh, tw 30 years ago, I was in the, I, I thought politics were kind of a joke. So I thought, well, let me, let me join the Green Party. Yeah. <laughs> you can't get, you can't get much more downtrodden than that. Yeah. You, know, you can't get to be much more of an underdog than that. So let me join the Green Party. And uh, so I, I came from this sort of the same realization in the background as, as Andrew Breitbart and saw the light. Yeah. So that's interesting. I want to talk just for a moment about blacklisting, because I do believe that there's probably some people out there that would say, well, you know, it's just uh, it's just a business and Hollywood's in it to make money. You know, I've heard these arguments, too, from friends that I have out in Hollywood. Uh, they're not stereotyping people based upon political belief. They just want to make money just like everybody else. And I think um, <clears throat> I think we we know the opposite of that is actually true. So um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the actor Neil McDonough, but he um, is in a movie that's coming out this weekend called The Ship. But he's been in some pretty large budget things. Most recently, um, he was in the TV series Justified. But um, moving forward in his career, most recently, probably two years ago, he said, I don't want to do any more sex scenes. I'm married. I want to honor my wife. And the moment he said that and said that it was based upon his Christian belief, his career ended. Everything that he had built, um, and Neil was a pretty high profile guy, uh, everything that he had built, he, he says, just totally crumbled and crashed to the ground. Um, and it wasn't until just recently with Angel Studios, who's behind Sound of Freedom and uh, The Chosen and other things, uh, picked him up and put him in this film that he say that he's starting to finally get work again in Hollywood. And then, of course, you've got the stories of like Kevin Sorbo, who says he's conservative and uh, doesn't Caviezel. have a career. Jim Caviezel has been totally blacklisted, especially after Sound of Freedom, a, a uh, what do they call it, a... Um, right-wing uh, QAnon movie, <laughs> you know, about not sex trafficking children, you know, imagine that. So anyway, I, 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 so what do, what do you guys say to people who have some skepticism as to I, I, what it means to be conservative in Hollywood? Yeah. We've been in the meetings where people talk about the, the opportunity to change the culture. Yeah. Their goal is to change the culture. They've been doing it for 50 years. Yep. We went to a, um, a Q&A session after a, a screening. We went to screenings all the time because she was in the Writers Guild, I was in the British Academy. And um, the showrunner from Glee was, uh, was answering questions. And one of the things he said was, I, it's my goal to put every sex act possible <laughs> in this TV show. And you know, that was a teenage show. Yeah. And, um, you know, there were hints about the, you know, uh, sexual proclivities of, of the cast, but um, th that was his goal. And uh, you take a look at Disney. Disney has been losing money. Their sh shares are, what, half the price they were mm -hmm. a year ago. And they're still putting out the woke kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, there's hope maybe that that won't continue. But by the way, just word to the wise for those of you watching this, um, if you haven't canceled Disney yet, time to consider. Um, uh, I, I don't know if you guys, this is kind of a side note, but I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the clip that's been going around of Elon Musk basically telling his sponsors what he thinks about them. Yeah, I saw and that. then uh, afterwards saying, hi, Bob, if you're in here. So he's speaking directly to Bob Iger in the audience after mm -hmm. he sent a nice expletive uh, their way. Um, and and afterwards, I found this very interesting um, because I think there's a shift, and this will play into the to the film you guys are in the process of making. Um, afterwards, he said, um, the person who was speaking to him, I think it was David Muir, uh, said, uh, you know, how, how can you say that? You know, you need your sponsors and stuff like that. And he said, there will be an ultimate judge. And they, and they said, the people are the ultimate judge. And he says, you think the people are going to uh, have a problem with what Disney's doing, and he said they already have. And the truth is, is yes, they have. There's a shift coming in the culture right now because parents, even if they're not Christian parents, are sick and tired of the implications of the woke agenda. And it's showing up in Disney's bottom line. It's showing up in the fact that I think the past, the, the last three films of Disney have been complete flops. They're nowhere near going to make their money back. Um, and 
my hope is because I like Disney, um, I would like to introduce my kid to some of their content. My hope is is that they'll turn around. I don't know if they will or not. But in the meantime, we're not going to wait for them because we've got Christians out there who are going to make content that is provocative, that is important, and tell stories that people need to hear. So um, I'd love to know kind of a little bit about how you guys got started in the film that you're making right now. So he named him Adam is an absolutely phenomenal story. It comes from somebody that that I know that I've met before um, and a little bit. I, I don't even I don't know the fullness of the story, but but everything I know about it is simply powerful. And this is not a story that's going to get made in Hollywood. So you guys absolutely left Hollywood and come to came to Chattanooga to make this movie. So tell me a little bit about how you got involved in the story he named him Adam. So how did you even figure out about it? Yeah, so uh, about two years ago, we went to the March for Life. We had just moved to Chattanooga, and we heard that the March for Life, for Life was happening. And we went there, and we pulled out our, our you know a cell phone and started shooting and asking people, hey, why are you here? So we wanted to put together just a little short film, two, three minutes, for uh, the Chattanooga chapter, Candy Klepper. Mm-hmm. And uh, we put this thing together, gave it to her, and she put it online, and that introduced us to the Tennessee Right to Life and so on. But Regina spoke at that March for Life, and her story was so compelling and th- really thrilling because of the inspiration that um, that we just had to get to know her. So we, we contacted her and then um, went shortly after that, Tennessee Right to Life asked us to uh, make a film for them, and which you've seen. Mm-hmm. And uh, we needed people to testify and we chose Regina. And then Veronica, who's the writer director, cut that, cut her story in between all the other elements of this sometimes boring documentary sorry tennessee right to life (laughs) but documentaries can be like that sure but uh her part of that of that story really kind of stuck out documentary was just it just blew people away by the end of it people were weeping yeah yeah so give us a little bit of the flavor of that story so that people will understand why it was so provocative to you guys so the story is uh, based on the true life uh, story of Regina Block. And Regina Block is a woman who had an abortion and immediately uh, suffered from post-abortive stress disorder. Um, she suffered from crippling depression for nine years, leading her to the brink of suicide. It was one day when she was driving down the road right by the abortion clinic, she became so distracted that she almost ran into an oncoming truck. What saved her was the voice of her four-year-old daughter in the back seat. Hmm. She was so distracted she had even forgotten that her daughter was there. And the words that her daughter said changed her life forever. And they were, I quote, Mommy, I had a dream about my brother. Hmm. It turns out that this little girl had been having a series of recurring dreams about meeting an eight-year-old brother in heaven. The dreams as they were revealed to Regina completely changed her perspective on everything and changed her life. She no longer had any more suicidal ideation. And in her words, she, quote, caught a glimpse of God's grace, goodness, and mercy. Mm. And from there, she went and finally got post-abortive counseling, which a lot of women don't even realize that that's out there. She volunteered at a pregnancy clinic where she was able to help other women who were basically facing the same dilemma that she had faced. She helped them. And then now she became, the uh, a few years ago, the director for the National Memorial for the Unborn, Mm -hmm. which is here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's built on the site of a former abortion clinic. And it's a place where people who have come to regret their abortions, and there are thousands, tens of thousands, we don't even know how many, probably millions mm-hmm. who have come to regret their abortion. They can come there. They, it's a place for them to come to memorialize, pay honor, and try to restore some of the dignity that was lost from these children. Who so you mean born. conservatives and Christians actually care about women? 
Well, this is the thing, because of course they're saying it's health care, yeah. right? But how is health care taking the life of a human being? Yeah. How is women's health care taking the lives of the next generation of women? Yeah. It makes no sense. And this is these are the kind of, you know, th it was stories like these. I think it's powerful also that we let you know that it, it, for me personally, I was, I was very, um, I was pro-abortion. Uh, I was raised in a Christian household. Uh, but in with which was a pro-life household, but I was kind of inculcated by the culture. Yeah, uh, I was poisoned by the culture, and it was so. I stood silent as many, many, many of the women in my life circle had abortions. I said nothing. I didn't try to talk them out of it. I didn't try to help them. And what changed me was the stories that I heard in the ensuing years. Mm -hmm. They uh, decades later, I started hearing stories like Regina's. And I and it really changed my heart. I mm. thought, wait a minute, yeah. these women were hurt. These women were deeply hurt. I mean, when you break down and you weep thirty years after something happened, that's a deep, deep hurt. Yeah, you can you can cherry pick women in in a crowd at a women's march or something like that uh, that will shout their abortion. But the silent untold story that doesn't get told in the culture with all of the lies that are there with the my body, my choice nonsense, neglecting the fact that the body in your body isn't your body. It's the body of another of, of another human being uh, with all of the narratives surrounding abortion. One of the things I'm, uh, that that I think the left has and the Democratic Party uh, more generally has stayed away from is the is the the story of of women post abortion right mm -hmm. so you will again you'll always find the uh, you can find somebody to uh, to shout their abortion but the millions of other women who have had abortions mostly sit in silence they suffer they think what could have been our culture tells them that this will take care of your quote issue and that clump of cells no longer will be a problem um, and um, and in the meantime a woman knows I, I think even I, I mean even like what you're saying with your story even a woman that's kind of steep in kind of liberalistic culture knows that what's inside of her body is a precious thing and so many women suffer in silence because they know that if they say hey my abortion created emotional distress and trauma in my life that I needed help with that maybe that I haven't even overcome yet. Maybe even women don't even know the, the full extent of it. But suffice to say, there's a lot of women right now who suffer in silence because they've fallen for the lies of, of, of the culture concerning the issue of abortion. So I think um, the thing that originally wanted me to kind of connect with you guys is not only because I'm pro-life, but also because I believe that story is not being told about these women who are suffering from the aftermath of an abortion, knowing that they ended the life of their child. Um, and I think that story needs to be told. Yeah, there are millions of women who are suffering from this. And until they can find a path to reconciliation and peace through Christ, yeah. uh, and if they're Jewish, then through God. But the point is, unless they get to that they need point, help, yeah. they're going to continue to uphold the laws that allow them to have abortions. They're going to teach their children and their grandchildren that it's okay. Yeah. As long as we can get them to see that there's a path to reconciliation, which Regina's stories will do, 100%. they're going to continue to vote for abortion. Yeah, there's this there's this idea called confirmation bias, and because the yeah. culture has been so um, ubiquitous with the the lies of abortion. Um, to justify or to try to wipe away the reality of what abortion is, uh, a lot of women will go to the my body, my choice, but it's not because they believe it. It's because it's the only thing they can tell themselves to be okay with what they've done. Mm -hmm. And so I think this story gives people another alternative to recognize that, yes, what took, what took place was the ending of an innocent life, but there is hope in the midst of it all. There is, there is restoration. So I think that's it's such a beautiful thing. So there's one other thing that I think is important to mention, which is the pro-life people have been um, using logic and science to convince people that that really is a human being. Mm -hmm. But half the people in this country respond to emotional arguments. Yeah, now, that's hard to believe, right? Watching free Palestine protests. But anyway, keep going, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, the pro-life people say, oh, those are shabby arguments. The thing is, they work. I mean, they actually they do. are better. They do. 
So that's why it's important to make a movie, because movies are simply the best way to tell an emotional story and convince people of something. You know, there are victims to the pro-abortion uh, stance. And normally what you see in TV are the victims from the traditionalists. You know that movie that came out last year about this young girl, she was a teenager, she didn't want to keep her baby. She, poor thing, had to go to another state. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the victim who, right. that they portrayed. And they didn't even talk about the fact that there was going to be somebody murdered in the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the victim narrative is totally flipped on its head. So that's why we're making a movie, because movies can do this better than anything. And there are millions of people, just going back to what you said in the beginning, millions of people that are hungry for these kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. And now that the streamers have won in the battle with Hollywood, we can get a picture out to, all, to a million homes. Mm -hmm. Right, and we can do it because we have experience, a lot of experience in guerrilla filmmaking. You know, we know what it's like to do a high quality film on a shoestring budget. Mm -hmm. All right, I want to circle back to Regina real quick because uh, obviously it's kind of a, I would call it a, a divine story, but but maybe another word for it is kind of a spooky story to hear your daughter in the back talk about a brother that she never met. So uh, maybe just to dig into the story a little bit because people may have kind of a skeptical mind there. So did the child know that she uh, that her mom had uh, performed an abortion? No. no, she never knew that her mother was pregnant, let alone had an abortion. Regina never told anybody. The only person that knew was Regina and the father of the child. Mm -hmm. No one else knew. She didn't tell friends, she didn't tell family members, she never mentioned it again to anyone. Mm -hmm. And actually the child, she had reported a few times prior, she, so it was at least three times she mentioned, I had a dream about my brother. And Regina dismissed this, she just kind of shrugged it. First of all, it kind of freaked her out. Yeah. And then she just kind of dismissed it, but the fact that she was, it was insistent, and it was every time she was driving by the abortion clinic mm. that it was mentioned. Wow, okay, that's a piece I didn't know. Right, three yeah. successive times driving by the abortion clinic. Mommy, I had another dream about my brother. Wow. So can you imagine that? Yeah, so. was she far enough along to know the sex of the child Went before the abortion? So, did she? she did not know, but she didn't know. Um, again, this was back in the 90s, so again, how much, that she never got an ultrasound. She wasn't sure on exact, there wasn't an exact certainty about, you know, how, how far along she was. Mm. But she had a conviction spiritually from the beginning that she had been carrying a boy. Mm -hmm. She just, mm. she, she described it to me that she knew mm -hmm. she was carrying a boy. Wow. So, uh, so it was no surprise to her when she heard, and the description was. Um, I'm not going to tell you about the dream because it's kind of, it's kind of a climactic. It's very much climactic yeah, no spoilers. moment in the movie, but um, there was enough specific information that uh, that was given to her that just really. It blew her away and yeah. took her breath away. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Um, and I think that this, again, is not just only a needed story for uh, for the people like Regina who were in her shoes at that time, um, who had had an abortion, were post-abortive in dealing with the stress and the trauma of that, but also because one of the things that I've noticed after 22 years of ministry is that this is an issue specifically that the church needs to do a better job of, of talking about and understanding so that we will stop with the kind of acquiescing and um, I can't think of a better word than pussyfooting around, but the but the the kind of placating that we do on this issue where, well, we just want to listen to people and, you know, if, we, if we're going to talk about abortion, we better talk about, make sure that we're adopting enough people and make sure that we're talking about the foster care system as though saving a life were not an intrinsic good in and of itself. Of course, like, let's do everything we can. Let's support our local pregnancy resource center. Let's, let's talk about adoption. Let's have a ministry of adoption in our church like we do in ours. Um, however, uh, we don't have to have all of those conversations to justify the idea of saving a life. And there is just, it, again, it goes back to this idea of how important culture is and how important this movie is, is that the culture has done a fantastic job of programming the mind of Christians to think a certain way about abortion rather than a biblical way. So I'm curious what you guys think the role of this film will be within the church among Christians and how important it is for even them to see a film like this. 
Well, I think one thing is is that this is not beating you over the head. This isn't one of those pro uh, pro life faith based film that just slams you over the head with Christian doctrine. Mm -hmm. This is a story of a real person who suffered regret. It's a human that, story. It's a human story. Yeah, and. Um, it happens to show um, Christians in a positive light, but they're not God all. God forbid. Yeah. 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 But uh, it's not like some Christians' movie where everybody's just, you know, perfect. And yeah. The, Regina struggled. Regina struggled with, she's not a very sympathetic character in the beginning of the movie. But of course, in the end, you know, it's just, it's uplifting. It's very uplifting. Mm -hmm. The other thing, too, is I think that. Um, it, it, with this, we kind of consider this a movie and a ministry because mm -hmm. we think that this is going to stimulate a lot of discussion. We, we need a discussion about this issue right now. We think that this would be a great thing, let's say, for movie nights in churches. This would be a, a great thing uh, for families who maybe have people in their families who are post-abortive and are suffering or people who are on the fence about the issue yeah. rather than sitting across the dinner table trying to argue it um, show them the movie, see, show them an example of what really happened to somebody and get them to talk about that from that perspective. Also, it's, we, we haven't done, the, the, the churches, all the churches have not done a really good job, I think, in really being specific about what it means to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. And so we're under this false umbrella of a notion of progress and not the correct umbrella, which is an umbrella of regress. Mm -hmm. If you know anything about biblical history, if you know about what the Roman Empire looked like when Jesus had boots on the ground and was walking through it, that was a pro-death, pro-pagan, pro-abortion, pro-child exposure, uh, pro-suicide, uh, on and on and on culture. It was not a culture of life. So one of the first things that Christians did to immediately distinguish themselves was not abort their children, yeah. not expose their children, not go to those places on the outskirts of town where the children that they didn't want, the handicapped, the girls, mostly girls, uh, the people that they didn't want were just dumped. As a matter of fact, Christians would go out there and would wait yeah. for those children and take them into their homes. And that's what immediately distinguished them in the culture. People were going, well, wait a minute. Why are you taking yeah, that value time? for life? Let me buttress that argument by just saying this, because this is where Christians like have been so programmed by the culture. So I've even heard people say this, like Jesus never talked about abortion. So why should we talk about abortion? <laughs> and I'm and I'm just thinking, well, maybe you miss that whole part where Jesus talks about kids very often. And then also says, if you harm one of these little ones, then it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. So it's so, yeah, people miss that historical context and they miss the idea that Jesus was oddly pro-life because he was the <laughs> Prince of Peace and King of Life and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, and they also miss the fact that he upheld everything in the, in the Old Testament, right? He upheld. He, he said, yeah, it's all true. Yeah. And, and you can read a lot about pro-life there. And they also miss the fact that when uh, the Pharisees confronted him about marriage, he could have just started with the part where he talked about, well, your hearts were hard. So that's why I allowed most. No, he went all the way back to Genesis mm -hmm. and he clarified, have I not told you from the beginning, and I may not be quoting it right, but he, he quote, quotes Genesis, that, he, that God created them male and female. Okay, there we go. God created. All right, so he is arguing, he created them. Mm -hmm. So what they are being created by God, and he clarified that. He made that very clear. So, um, so that is, that's a social teaching that a lot of people just sort of leave out or mm -hmm. ignore. Um, if he's quoting it from Genesis, it means it's true. Yeah. And God is the creator of human life. Yeah. So who are we to destroy what God creates? So I'll play the, um, I won't say devil's advocate because I don't like playing anything that has to do with the devil, but I'll just say um, that... Uh, I, I'll just kind of push back and see what you guys say about this. There's this idea that um, you cannot be either explicitly Christian or you can't be explicitly pro-life without coming off as preachy or anything, um, uh, without coming off as preachy and um, maybe pushing the audience away in the midst of trying to communicate the message. Now, you already mentioned that that's not you're not after necessarily a Christian film. It's Christian themes and all that kind of stuff, and you're not after preaching about people uh, or preaching 
pushing people so that you push them away from the issue more than invite them in to have a conversation and have thoughtful dialogue about this kind of stuff. But undeniably, your film is also explicitly pro-life. So can you have, can you genuinely have an explicitly pro-life film and get an audience to come and see it? Yeah, I think that it's difficult and it's, it's the challenge, you know, and we're, we're, Veronica wrote the script specifically to get people in that may have suffered from abortion. Mm -hmm. And I think she's done a really good job of it, but it is very difficult. I mean, my, in my opinion, the left is far more closed-minded than the right. Mm -hmm. And so if they have, if they, it just smacks of anything that might turn them off. Well, I mean, take a look at what uh, our website, we have Regina's interview there. There's a little warning there put on by uh, YouTube saying that this is about abortion. Yeah. So, you know, flags go up everywhere. It's a battle that we fight, but I think storytelling is the way to get yeah. through that. Yes, and I can tell you that I have told this story, just telling this story to, uh, to women that I know who are either on the fence or have been voting for abortion candidates. And w I've had some of those women donate to this. Mm -hmm. Wow. And they've also, uh, a couple of them have said to me that they're rethinking it. Yeah. So they've actually started to kind of rethink it because these are things that they never thought of before. They never, they really thought like I did that they were helping women. It never occurred to them that they might be hurting them. So I think what I really, my goal uh, as a filmmaker is to really get a dialogue going yeah. about this issue to make people aware how uh, post-abortive women suffer, to get those women to come out of the shadows, to get them to share their experiences, mm -hmm. to get them to move forward, to bring them forward in this culture, because it, it really kind of puts the spotlight on this issue. Yeah. And then it makes you kind of wonder, well, who really are the people that care about women? I like to call myself, I used to be, we, we tend to go into these camps, pro-life, pro-abortion. Mm -hmm. I call myself pro-knowledge. I'm a pro-knowledge person. Because look at the side that wants you to have knowledge about, the side that wants you to have knowledge about what's inside of you, uh, what's really going on when you're pregnant, mm -hmm. um, what, what you're maybe potentially doing to yourself by having an abortion, what happens to you afterwards and the negative consequences, and who's the side that's trying to prevent you from knowing all that? Yeah. That's how you know, because the more knowledgeable you are, you are going to cho choose life. What is it, something like the statistic of 80% of women who see the ultrasound choose to carry their children yeah. to term. It's the people who are trying to stop them from seeing the ultrasound. Those are the people you have to be very suspicious yeah. of. Who are supposedly pro-science, right? Yes. Because here, here's this, uh, the idea is that to think that it would be taboo even to tell a story that not only, yes, affirms biblical truth, but also is in congruence with science and in congruence with reason and, and rationality and all those things. Obviously, you're telling a creative story, but... I guess the point I'm trying to make is that um, we have a lot of the storytelling features on on the side of life, but I don't know that we've done a great job of telling the story in the past in such a way that it is provocative and it is evoking of emotion and 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 thought for people. So I, I think that's where films like this need to happen, and we have to get behind them, and we have to support them because we need more and more and more of it. Um, and I'll give you, uh, to kind of also go with the question that I asked about being explicitly pro-life, explicitly Christian, we're seeing more and more and more of this. So first of all, the left is very explicit in their belief about abortion. I just saw, I think this was published a couple days ago, Cosmopolitan published an article oh talking gosh. about their satanic abortion clinics where they we try to mock Christianity. Did you guys see that? Yeah. So they have no problem being as, as explicit as they want to be with what abortion is to the point where... We've gone from like safe, legal, and rare to safe, legal, and um, on demand. And, and on demand, basically. And yeah. <laughs> safe, legal, so, and so, so they're being honest about it. I think yeah. we can afford to be honest about it. Right. Um, but th so that's kind of the example on the left. But the example on the right is even though this is not a left-right issue, and I'm glad you said this, pro knowledge. I love that. But uh, at least in terms of the way the culture talks about it. Um, on the right, we're seeing more explicit things happening. Just the other day, I saw a candidate that's running for, for Senate, I believe, and she's running on being pro-life. 
and she literally, and a lot of people, a lot of Christians get squeamish with this. She's literally in her campaign ad showing yes. pictures of abortions yes, and saying, "Is this that. what you want for your society? Is this what you want for this your kids?" This might be the lady who's yes, who's running for president. She's running for president. Yeah. And okay. She, she went. She went to abortion clinic and fished out the the dead bodies of the babies. Yes. Oh, okay. Then okay. And then I didn't know it was the same person. Them. Yeah. She's running for president. Okay. Yeah. Now she's probably not going to win, but yeah. <laughs> but the truth is is that it needs to be talked. There's about. more of this explicit stuff happening. And the, and the last example, I'd love to hear what you guys think about this. There's more explicit stuff happening from a conservative perspective that I just love, and I think it's long overdue. Um, Lady Ballers is a new movie by The Daily Wire. Now. This is a movie that is satirical, and it's making fun of men playing in women's sports. And a lot of Christians get a little queasy with this. But the reality is, is that the, the, the other side of the aisle has been making movies, mocking Christians, mocking uh, uh, pro-life, mocking all sorts of other things that we believe uh, um, for a regular basis. And this is not tip for tat, eye for an eye, but it's just the reality of when we start to think rationally, pro-wisdom, pro-knowledge, we realize the idea that a man can play in a woman's sport is absolutely ridiculous and deserving of being mocked. And so now they're making a movie about this. And so the reality is, is that even more so from a dramatic perspective, when we think about life, can you think of a better subject matter for a movie than to talk about the preservation of the most innocent among us. So I think we need more and more content like what you guys are creating in order to push back against the narrative that we're hearing so often in society. Right. Yeah. And this is where we're going. The Christians here, this is not a Sunshine and Roses movie about right. Christians. These are real people. Uh, or the, the characters are inspired by a true story. They're inspired by uh, real events. And therefore, um, they're, compli they're complicated. They're complex. They're grayer. They're struggling in their own battles. Mm -hmm. And um, you see real character arcs as a result of this. So, um, and it doesn't hit you over the head. This is not a movie that we don't want to preach to the converted. We want to draw in people. All people. All yep. people. We yeah. want to be able to, again, initiate a dialogue about this. Yeah, because life should be a, it, life shouldn't be a polarizing issue. I understand that it is. I think you should ask yourself why, because it shouldn't be. And if it is, you might have some people to point to. But, but we should be able to um, look at this woman's story, uh, think about what we can gain from it, and then, and then glean um, a glean a greater appreciation for this precious gift that is life. And one thing I wanted to say was that um, unfortunately conservatives and pro-life people don't put their money where their mouth is. True. A lot of conservative donors are simply giving to media companies like I'm talking about news organizations, think tanks, uh, position papers, whereas the left, who are the big, really big uh, donators to the democratic cause? The Hollywood moguls, yeah. huge amounts, hundreds of millions of dollars. And Planned Parenthood, by the way. And what? And Planned Parenthood. Right. And Planned Parenthood. And, and what happens is not only are they donating there, but they're putting money into movies even if they don't make money, as I mentioned before. Yeah. That is another, that's an equivalent like billion dollar donation to the Demo Democratic, Democratic Party. Who are the bad guys in the films from in Hollywood? If you're wearing a cross or yeah. you pray at the beginning of the movie, you know that's going to be the White bad guy. White male evangelicals, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, um, yeah, you, you just said it all. Yeah, you just said it all. There you go. And, and this is why it's uh, we need to make a plea to your listeners. Can we pitch a plea? Yeah, please. To your listeners? Okay. So um, we're, we have started a crowdfunding campaign. Um, what that is is we're getting small donations from everybody across the country, um, and we're asking people. We're not asking for a lot. Um, we're asking whatever you're comfortable giving. Um, even a minimum of $5 would help us. And then again, that's less than a pumpkin spice latte yeah. during the holiday, um, which I think is between $5.45 and $5.95 something. So anything, and basically uh, to please donate and to tell your friends, uh, share it among your pro-life friends. To put it in perspective, we, if we had 100,000 people donate $5 each, we, this movie would be funded. Mm -hmm. We could make this film. Um, if they want to give a, a minimum donation of $15, when the movie is completed, we will send you a link 
so that you can stream the movie. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot cheaper than going to your multiplex or even purchasing a lot of things uh, on, uh, that's great. Know, on the streaming services. And where are you guys at in terms of production? So pre-production, I'm assuming now, have you guys done any filming or anything like that? No. So the script is written. And we're waiting until we raise more money before we can start pre-production. Okay. But we're, we're imagining it's going to be a few months. Right. Yeah. So we're, uh, we're trying to build momentum, media momentum, uh, and we're going to be at the, uh, the Pro-Life, uh, the March summit. for Life and the Pro-Life Summit in January. We're really trying to build up our presence and get people aware of what it is yeah. that we're trying to do here. <laughs> That's so great. So I will put down in the description of this podcast um, a link to where people can go to your website and also give to what you guys are doing. You need to give at least $5 or more, if you can, to, to what Mark and Veronica are doing. Um, I wanted to save this last thing. Uh, to, to talk about because we just heard Fox News report the other day that around 32,000 babies have been saved as a result of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And of course, um, there's been skepticism online as to where they got those numbers because there's no real way to connect directly Roe, uh, the overturning of Roe to these lives. But we know that when you get rid of policies that kill babies, babies tend to actually get saved a little bit and the birth rate has gone up exponentially from the overturning of Roe v. Wade since now. So ultimately, I think this is a time of rejoicing. This is a time to for conservatives, for people with a conscience, for pro-knowledge people to realize that when babies are saved and babies are allowed to thrive, that this is a good thing and this is, an, uh, this is something that we should celebrate. And so there's this idea that um, the pro-life message isn't a winning message, but we see that it's winning in the most important ways we could possibly think of. It is saving lives. So I just want to kind of end on that and give you guys the opportunity to respond to that because ultimately I, I, I don't know you well, but I think I know well enough to know that your hope is that people will be inspired, people will like the movie, people will, um, uh, will share it with others, but that potentially it may save a life, a human life. Oh, that's if it saves one life, it's been worth it. But we we really believe that it'll be a lot more than that. And one of the things I, th I think we have to keep in mind is that the battle is not over. When Ohio um, yeah. enshrined abortion into their constitution, it was a blow. Yeah. Um, so we can't give up. We can't stop fighting for this thing. Mm -hmm. And we feel that the unmet challenge is reaching the women who have had abortions and regret it. And they're the next people that, um, that we think will respond to this message. Mm -hmm. I agree. Millions and, of them. And yeah, everybody's, uh, and everybody's created with a plan and a purpose. There's a plan and a purpose for those thousands of children that have been saved. And I really have a belief because, again, I'm a believer in God. Uh, I know that God is the creator, the author and origin of human life. That if the people who were intended to be here now were here, they had a plan. They had a reason for being here. Mm -hmm. They were supposed to be the husbands, the wives, the brothers, the sisters, the children of, of three, four generations now. I believe that our world would be very different if they were here, and I believe it would be better. I believe that uh, it, this whole idea that we would be overcrowded and oh, that's saving the planet, that's a bunch of nonsense. How do we know that the person who God sent wouldn't have had the technology that we're all looking for, mm -hmm. wouldn't have had the cures we're all looking for, wouldn't be the political leaders and the religious and spiritual leaders that we're all looking for. Uh, wouldn't have been able to save families and nurture the sick and the suffering and care for elderly parents right now. I mean, all these crises that we are facing, how do we know that those people um, would not have come in and, and, and prevented them mm -hmm. and created a better world? I believe as a Christian that they would have. Me too. And, um, and that's why I think this, this is impor important because I believe that this film, among other things, demonstrates that mm -hmm. it demonstrates he named him Adam <laughs> yeah. okay God named that child Adam so it's up to you to figure out why I have my own opinions as to why but um, but I've discussed that with Regina mm -hmm. so and uh, there was a plan and a purpose for this child 100% and she believes she knows what that is now 
Um, but it, we don't want people to look back and see that in retrospect. We want them to be able to bring their children into this world so they can live that plan and yeah. that purpose. Yeah, 100%. And I think those are the kind of messages that we have to start telling more and shout them as far and, and wide as we possibly can. Because again, there's this idea that uh, being explicitly pro-life and being overtly pro-life is not a winning issue, that we need to be more strategic, we need to play the long game. And I rather argue, and this is a lot of the things that was talked about in the aftermath of Ohio, well, how come Republicans are losing these kind of battles, that kind of thing. Um, and I rather just simply think it's because we are not fighting well. Um, I don't think we need to play the long game. I just think we need to fight using the tools that are at our disposal. And that's why I'm really, really pumped about what you guys are doing, because I believe that more stories like this have to be told to push back against what the culture has been told for so many years. And you if know, we can, you, we can win. You know, you have to realize that Jesus was the greatest storyteller of all. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was telling the parables, which were the movies of the day. So we know that they work. We mm -hmm. know that movies are really the have the most important impact on the culture. Yeah, no doubt. All right, so I don't know if you can tell me, because I don't know if this is like a spoiler in the film, but he named him Adam. Um, I, I forgot to ask throughout the whole thing. Um, where does the title of that, of the movie, come from? Because the boy uh, identified himself as Adam. In the dream, to the yes. little girl. Yes. Yeah. He said he was named Adam. Uh -huh. Wow. Um, can you share why you think that is? Because you alluded to that. I, well, again, I, uh, this isn't a spoiler. This is my theory because, of course, he didn't tell his sister why he was named Adam. But, of course, Adam, I believe in Hebrew, means first man. Mm -hmm. So um, I believe he was supposed to be Regina's first man. I believe he was supposed to be her first boy, first man. And I also think it's, this is something that was perhaps... Regina always felt this was meant to be a movie. Mm -hmm. I, I tend to agree with her. I think this is also a hearkening back to, if you read Genesis, to, to hearken us back, the message from God, because I can tell you also, spoiler, a little bit of a spoiler alert, the child wasn't alone. Mm. And that, um, that I believe that this was a message, a spiritual message to go back and look, look at Genesis, because who created Adam? Mm -hmm. Right, And if he created Adam and he created this boy, who are we, again, to destroy what God has created yeah, and amen. call ourselves followers of God and call ourselves followers of Christ, yeah. who is the Son of God and one with the Father? All right. Well, before we close, um, give us the website real quick just so that people can hear it um, in case they miss it in the description. It's www.henamedhimadam.com. Awesome. And you can give tens of thousands of dollars uh, at <laughs> yeah. that website? You can. Indeed. You can. At the website, you can, you can do Venmo. You can do PayPal. Uh, you click on any one of the donation links that allows you to do credit cards. And, uh, and we've been getting a lot of uh, large donations mailed directly to us. So the address is there. Okay. Make, a, make a check out that he named him Adam LLC. Yeah. Well, if we're going to win the culture war, which means winning lives, which shows that winning the culture war matters, we're going to need guys like you telling stories like the one you're telling. So I can't wait to watch he named him Adam and to see the great work that you guys do. And I'm thankful that you're telling this really, really important true story. So thank you, guys. Thank, thank you, you so much. Absolutely. All right, guys, that's all the time we have. Thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and go with God. Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. Indie Thinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself. <laughs>